Welcome to the Lemon Spark Podcast, where we share stories about lemons that spark a new direction in life. I'm your host, Barbara Zabala. Well, welcome Natasha Hill to the Lemon Spark Podcast. Thank you so much for joining me. Everyone meet Natasha. She is a police officer in Devon and Cornwall in the UK. And she's been doing that for 22 years. And she particularly works with victims of child abuse. She also is in charge of well-being for the police department. And I think that's how we got connected on LinkedIn because we're both involved in wellness and well-being. And so when I heard about Natasha, I asked her if she could join me on the Lemon Spark podcast and she readily agreed. So thank you so much, Natasha. Tell us a little bit about your lemon. Yeah, so hi. So first of all, thank you so much for inviting me. I really appreciate it. Um, It's a really fantastic opportunity. Um, And yeah, so I, as you say, I've been a police officer for 22 years. Um, I spent majority of that working with victims of child sexual abuse. Um, And then in the last year, I've joined the wellbeing team. Um, So I'm now working to support um, around 7,000 staff across Devon and Cornwall and Dorset Police, um, looking after police officers and police staff and their wellbeing and delivering training, which I'm absolutely loving. Um, And I think it was my, ultimately, it was my lemon, which happened 17 years ago, which led me to to this point where I am here today. But obviously, I had no idea that, that that would be the case. Um, or that this is an area that I would, you know, um, end up working in. But I was 29 years old. I had just had my second daughter, Olivia. I had my first daughter, Eleanor, was 20 months old. Um, And I'd just given birth to Olivia. I was 29. I was really fit and healthy. I exercised, didn't drink very much, never smoked, um, was fairly newly married, Um, and enjoying my career in the police and I can vividly remember driving home from the hospital with Olivia as a tiny baby and thinking that my life was pretty perfect and I I was just really lucky that I'd got everything I wanted I'd always wanted two daughters and yeah life was really really good. How old was your other daughter the, the older one? So she was 20 months old she was just just under two. Okay so you had a newborn and a 20 month old. I did. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. And um, so, yeah, so life was hectic. Obviously, I was extremely tired and there was lots of, you know, potentially looking back, there was lots of things maybe that were going on with me physically, but I kind of just put everything down to pregnancy, really. Um, and obviously being tired because I also had a toddler that I was running around after and I was also working as a police officer. So, <laughs> yeah, exactly. It was pretty tiring, pretty tiring. Um So then when Olivia was around about four weeks old, I noticed a small lump that had come up um, just around my shoulder blade. And it was just a tiny little lump. I saw it in the mirror. And at the same time, I had a bit of a pain in my arm. Um, So I thought it was a bit odd. And I decided to go and see my doctor. So I went to the doctor. He examined me. He wasn't happy. And he sent me to A&E. So I went to the hospital, to A&E. They spent about four hours doing loads of different checks. And they did x-rays and all sorts of things and basically said, no, we think everything's fine. Just take some paracetamol, some painkillers and, you know, off you go. So the following day, I got a phone call from my doctor and he said, we've had some tests come back from the hospital, which we're not happy with. But 
I know you're going away on holiday today, so go away on holiday and we'll sort it out when you get back. So I was going away for a week's holiday to France, family holiday. And I thought, well, it can't be anything serious. Otherwise, obviously, you know, I wouldn't be, he wouldn't be telling me to go away. So off I went on my, off went on my holiday, came back and had loads of letters and phone calls um, asking me to get in touch with the hospital urgently. So obviously that then, you know, triggered some anxiety and I thought that was, you know, quite strange. Then that day I took Olivia, my daughter, for her six-week check at the doctor's. The doctor checked her over. I went on my own because there's no reason why I wouldn't. I dropped Eleanor off with my parents and the doctor checked Olivia and I was getting Olivia dressed and she looked at her computer and she was updating her notes and she said, oh, I didn't know that you were ill. So I kind of looked at her puzzled and didn't know what she was talking about. And she said, oh, well, if you're having chemotherapy, you won't be able to breastfeed. So that was the first that I had heard about any illness that I might have. I certainly didn't know anything about chemotherapy. And she was just reading this off of notes on the computer. So I basically shut down. I just don't really kind of, you know, I sort of went into autopilot. I started crying. I just gathered Olivia up, didn't no, didn't kind of think to ask any more questions because I was just terrified, really. Went to the car, phoned my parents in a bit, you know, a bit of a state, went back to their house. Um, and then all the rest of it is a bit of a blur, really, over the next couple of weeks. I had to wait nearly two weeks before I went to see a consultant, got referred to a haematology consultant, went into the waiter, still didn't have a clue, really. I was really naive at that time. I'd never heard of haematology didn't mean anything to me. I didn't I did, just didn't know what was going on. So I went in to see a consultant, Dr. Ter- Dr. Turner, and was had my baby with me, Olivia, because I was feeding her. I was kind of clinging on to her, really didn't want to let her go. My husband was with me at the time. We got called in and there was all lots of old people. I remember thinking that, I, I why am I the only young person here? Yeah, you were still 29 it, at the time, right? I was 29, yeah. And so went to see Dr. Turner and she then proceeded to explain to me that I had Hodgkin's lymphoma, which is a type of lymphatic cancer. And she said that I was stage three and there were only four stages. She just she held on to the the kind of vivid memory I have is that she held onto my hand and looked at me whilst I was, you know, had Olivia in my arms and was crying, obviously very distressed. And she just looked at me and said, I'm going to cure you. Please don't worry. I'm going to cure you. So anyway, I was taken off into another room, kind of wasn't really able to digest anything else that was being said to me, then went home. And then sort of over the next couple of weeks, it was all a bit of a blur, really. I was trying to sort of absorb what was happening. The fact that I would have to stop breastfeeding, I was devastated because I'd done that for my first daughter. And it was just something that was really important to me. And I just thought I was going to die, basically. You know, I'd been told I had cancer. And, you know, at that time, I just associated people who had cancer died and I was going to leave my daughters and I wasn't going to see them grow up. And, Mm. and I just felt like the floor had just kind of been taken away from under me. Really. I just went into a very, very dark place. I started chemotherapy within two weeks. So it was very quick. And I had chemotherapy every two weeks for six months, which obviously, you know, I became more and more ill as that went on. I lost all my hair. Then after the chemotherapy, then had four weeks of radiotherapy. And yeah, just went on this very, very difficult kind of path, really, of being, you know, a mum of two little girls, desperately not wanting them to be affected by it. I wanted them to 
have a normal life. I wanted to go to mum and baby groups and do all the things that, you know, that I, I imagined I would be doing. But obviously it was really hard because people didn't know what to say to me. People were avoiding me. Obviously, as time went on, I started to look like someone who had cancer. And yeah, it was a very difficult time, obviously, for me, but for everybody around me as well. It was really, you know, it's yeah. very, very weird. Isn't that interesting? I, I hear that a lot. And I've experienced it myself that when you're going through some of the toughest times in your life, you know, when you need people the most, is oddly, a lot of people abandon you. Mm, yeah. And I would say now looking back and I, again, I think you a lot of people find the same, that it was the friends that I imagined would be there for me, weren't there for me. Mm-hmm. And the friends that I, I had never imagined would be, you know, would kind of be there through thick and thin, actually really stepped up and, and kind of were there to, to support me. So you definitely find out who your true friends are. There's, there's no doubt about it. Yeah, it was just, as I say, very difficult. My main focus was, I was in lots of ways, I, I felt very lucky that I had my daughters because I was able to just completely focus on them put all my energy into them I took Olivia with me whenever I had chemotherapy because she was so tiny I didn't take Eleanor because I didn't want her to have any memory of it but Olivia was so tiny and I just focused on her and I remember when I went for my first chemotherapy session again I had no idea what to expect and and again, everybody around me was old. I was the only young person. Um, obviously, that we didn't have social media at that time. There was it was nothing like you know there is now in terms of connection. And I felt like the only young person on the planet who had cancer. I certainly felt like the only mum on the planet who had cancer. Um, and I remember them bringing out a tray of about fifteen different needles full of drugs that they were going to inject me with. And um, even just talking about it now, I can. It, you know, I can still taste the metal taste that you get in your mouth from having um, all these different drugs that they pump you with. And it does make me feel a bit physically sick. It's really strange. Even all, you know, all these years later, um, it's yeah, very vivid. What did, what was going on with your job at the police department? Did they, were you on leave at this point? Yeah. So obviously to begin with, I was on maternity leave because I'd had a baby. And then I was, I do count myself again, very lucky. My, um, my job were really, really supportive. Um, I was basically kind of told to just focus on, on me and my health. And I remained on my full pay. Um, I was off for nearly two years in the end of work and yeah, they were extremely supportive. Fantastic. I was very, very lucky. So they gave you full pay for those full two years yeah because the first part was maternity which obviously we get you know again on I I got full pay on maternity leave and then I was on sick leave and then they extended my sick leave because of the circumstances and then I obviously took some holiday on top of that so yeah but for that whole time I was on full pay you think that's unique to the police officer job in the UK or is that pretty common across types of careers and jobs I think there's an awful lot of jobs that are that do offer similar things not for that long I mean the standard is kind of six months um the standard is 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 six months and then after that you can claim statutory sick pay which is significantly less obviously but so I yeah I'm, I'm definitely I was I definitely did feel lucky there's no doubt 
I so I celebrated my 30th birthday not knowing I had a big party and I didn't know at that time if I was going to be okay or not um but I was just determined to you know to partly for my children I wanted to create some memories for them I was all this time I was thinking you know I'm not going to be here to see them grow up and then yeah luckily in so so I was diagnosed in the March April time 2004 and then finally in May 2005, um, I was then had a final scan and was then fortunately given the all clear um, after, as I say, four weeks radiotherapy as well. So the cancer had spread to my spleen. But yeah, it was all completely gone um, by May 2005. Wow. And and I assume since it's 17 years later that there's no cancer, there hasn't been any recurrence of, of cancer. No, no. Yeah, I haven't had anything touch wood. I've gone through, I still go through, I think anybody who's been through it can, you know, will know that once you've had it, you always, unfortunately, have it there at the back of your mind that you, you know, pretty convinced it's going to come back. But yeah, I, I got the foot, all my family were, were around my house waiting for the phone call from the consultant and she phoned to say that my results were all clear. And I was kind of, you know, dancing around the room, as you can imagine, we were all celebrating and I was saying, right, I'm going to do this. I'm going to do that. And I'm going to, you know, conquer the world because, you know, now I'm going to be okay. And I vividly remember turning and looking at my husband then, who I'm now not with. He was sat on the sofa and, and I looked at him and he said, to be quite honest, I just need three months off to recover. (laughs) And that was the point. yeah exactly so that was the point where I looked at him and thought I cannot stay married to you um it it was a massive you know kind of light bulb moment really for me where I just thought I I think lots of people I've spoken to since you go through something um as life-changing as that and in a relationship it either brings you closer together or it drives you you know wide apart and it absolutely there was lots of things that had happened during that time where he struggled with you know, the extra work that he had to do and the extra responsibility and, you know, um, and me being ill for such a long period of time. And and I just thought, actually, we're just too different now. But again, I think if it hadn't been for the cancer, I think I would have been much more focused on, I've got to stay with him because he's the father of my children and that's the right thing to do. And I'm married and that's for life. And, you know, all those kind of messages but it, it was a very, very easy decision in a lot of ways because I just thought life is so short and I know yeah. this now better than anyone. And I cannot spend my life with someone who, you know, who doesn't make me truly, truly happy. And if I'm not truly happy, my children can't be truly happy. Yeah. So it, in that way, it was a really easy decision. It definitely brings perspective, you know, when you're <laughs> yeah. thrown into a very, you know, life and death kind of situation like that. Um, yeah, exactly. Exactly. And I then kind of just went on this whole roller coaster really over the next few years of really, if I'm brutally honest, kind of expecting the cancer to come back. And so I was just desperately trying to cram as much into my life as I possibly could. You know, whatever opportunities came up, I would say yes to, you know, whatever they they might be. And I kept myself really, really busy. I obviously became a single mum to two girls. So my life was crazy and that kind of and then I threw myself into work as well so I was sport I was supporting victims of child sexual abuse and I was very passionate about it so I was passionate about my work and busy and then passionate about being a mum and and living life to the full so everything was just completely crazy and 
it wasn't until I met my now husband, who we've been together 10 years now, and he kind of bought some more sort of stability and that protection and love and all those other things that I was then in a position to be able to really sit back and reflect and kind of realise that I'd been really traumatised by what had happened to me, but just had not had the headspace to be able to process it properly. And so again, I was very lucky. Um, I had a bit of a meltdown at work and got referred to our occupational health department. And they referred me to a psychologist who diagnosed me with PTSD, post-traumatic stress disorder. And I then started, I then had EMDR therapy, which is quite commonly used for PTSD. It's eye movement, um, desensitization. And it's not something that I knew anything about, but also this lady happened to be a specialist in in people who had had cancer because it's actually really common for people that have had cancer to be diagnosed with post-traumatic stress but of course because all the focus is on the physical symptoms and helping you recover physically that in terms of what's going on in the mind that's kind of neglected a bit because that's you know that's kind of secondary so I think you know I'd sat on that for for years um and was actually, you know, as I say, really traumatised by everything that had happened to me. Um, and so very luckily, I was then referred to a psychologist and received fantastic support. And that was life changing. And this was after you had met your now. Yes. And yeah. when you had a chance to kind of decompress, because it sounds like after you physically recovered from cancer, you poured your all of your energy into work and being a single mom and like you said living life to the full almost would you say were you like suppressing all of the the trauma you know, you weren't you weren't addressing it you were just putting yourself making yourself so busy where you you couldn't you didn't have the bandwidth to address it is that yeah exactly yeah I was 100% suppressing it and I was also so focused on I wanted to make the most of every single second that I had with my daughters because I was still convinced that I wasn't going to see them grow up into adults so I wanted to provide them with as many memories as I possibly could so you know I took them all sorts of different places we went to see concerts we went to the theatre you know, even when they were younger, this is like, you know, under the age of six, because I just wanted to, I was so desperate for them to have these memories of, of their time with me. So yeah, I, I just did not allow myself any time to really process or think about the impact that it had had on me. And as I say, it wasn't until I then met Steve and, you know, kind of really came back down to earth, I guess, and, and felt, you know complete in terms of a family and you know then yeah as I say luckily I was then referred to someone and kind of really talked about the massive psychological impact that it had had on me and that it continued to have on me you know I would I was I would get flashbacks I wouldn't have been able to talk about it like I am now because it would you know I would have been an emotional wreck yeah it was just really really tough for me to talk about so I had this treatment yeah as I say it's genuinely been life-changing because I can now talk about it like I am now and it doesn't mean I'm not affected by it I still I I still feel affected by it when I think about it but in a normal kind of way rather than the fact that I'm traumatized by it if that makes sense are you still getting that what is it? EMDR? EMDR. No. So I had it. I went back to see Ruth. I don't know how many sessions I had with her. Um, over a period of about three years, I kind of went for some, then had a bit of a break, then went for some. And, and I haven't been back to see her now for um, 
probably about two years, I think. But again, it's kind of one of those things that other things might come up and there might be times in the future where I need to go back and sort of see her again and have a bit of a top up. But again, luckily, I've got that support. But that's kind of what's led me then into this into the arena of well-being. So then, so at the same time as I was going through all that treatment, I then started to explore all the different tools that you can, you know, use and bring into your life around well-being. So I started to practice mindfulness and really just self-care, you know, looking after myself because I'd completely neglected myself, really. So started to explore all these different things. And then I organised a conference at work, a well-being conference for police officers in 2017, and I spoke about having cancer for the first time in front of, a, you know, sort of 150 people at work and got such an overwhelming response, you know, that it kind of really made me think, actually, maybe I could make a difference to other people because I could talk about it, you know, my experience. So, as I say, I then started exploring lots of other areas of well-being. And then that led me to apply for this role within the well-being team. Um, and as I say, it's now something I'm really passionate about. And I can now kind of transfer those skills that I've learned and, you know, share my passion around, you know, how, how important it is to look after yourself, that we've all got such busy, complex lives with so many different things going on. And we can carry all these different things around with us on our shoulders. We carry this trauma with us in all, in all different forms. But it's so important that you do take that time to properly process it and really step back and kind of use all the different tools that are out there. And it isn't a one size fits all. You know, there's so many different things. You've got to find what works for you. Mm-hmm. But when you do, then making sure that you have that as part of your everyday life so that you can try and maintain that you know, sense of well-being. So as a member of the well-being team at work, what, what does that role look like? Is, or do people who, fellow co-workers, can they just make an appointment to talk to you? Or are you kind of creating programs that everybody can participate in? I mean, what, what is it that you do as your well-being team member role? Yeah, so it's kind of a bit of all of that, really. So I deliver lots of training on well-being. So I put together different workshops around stress and resilience and anxiety um, and mindfulness. And I teach a mindfulness, six-week mindfulness course. I run mindfulness sessions on Teams, on Microsoft Teams. I also support lots of individuals. So lots of people that I'm, you know, I then deliver training and people will contact me separately and ask for my advice and support. We create newsletters and we bring in outside speakers. I ran and put together alongside my colleague, Kathy, we ran a virtual wellbeing festival last October and we're planning another one for this year. So that's a, you know, we're um, doing it over two weeks and we're covering all areas of, of well-being and bringing in lots of outside speakers to kind of, you know, bring in their areas of expertise and share that with staff. So, again, all those events would then be advertised out to staff and they can then join join those for free. So, yeah, I feel really, really lucky. And, and there's so, you know, so many times when and it does sound a bit weird, but now. I look back and think I'm actually glad that I had cancer, which is the weirdest sentence you could probably say. But because it's taught me so much, it's changed me completely. It's made me really appreciate in the true sense of the word, really appreciate every single day and every single moment. Um, because you just never know what life is going to throw at you and then it's also opened up all these opportunities to speak to people like I am with you now that you know I would never have had so I do feel very lucky that you know that I was able to have that experience and that it's taught me a massive amount about my own personal resilience you know if somebody had said 
this is going to happen to you and you're going to have two small children and you're going to end up getting divorced and all these things I would have said well I will not be able to cope with that because I'll just be sat in a corner rocking and you know crying and I, I won't even be able to leave the house but of course that wasn't the case and I'm not I'm not super, you know I'm, I'm not a superhero I'm not superwoman all of us have got that within us um you know when you're kind of faced with things like that you somehow pull yourself out of those dark places and kind of get on with life and it teaches you a massive amount yes life's lemons do have a way of sparking things inside of you that you never knew were there or maybe thought that possibly were there but weren't ever sure until it, you're forced to to contend with it so what an inspiring story. And I'm sure you are just an invaluable resource for your police department. You know, now that you have not only the skill set, but you're compassionate. You know, I can tell that you you have a sensitivity that when people would will come to you, I'm sure you're able to really connect with them in a way that if you hadn't had that experience, you probably it, it would probably have been more difficult to relate. Though. Absolutely. Yeah. So how can people connect with you, Natasha, if they want to either learn more or just stay in touch? What, where are you on social media? I know you're on LinkedIn. Yeah, so I am on LinkedIn. So I am Natasha Hill on LinkedIn. Um, and I'm also on Instagram, Natasha EO on Instagram um, and um, on Facebook as well. But I don't really know if people still use Facebook or not. But Natasha Ann, I am on, on Facebook. Okay. Um, so, yeah, but I'm more than happy to connect with people on on um, LinkedIn. Yeah, of course. And also, you know, if people I'd love to connect with up with people, you know, different police departments, because obviously now we're so connected, aren't we? Through, you know, like I'm talking to you now you know, um, in the, in the U S from, um, the UK. So it would just be fantastic. Like for example, when I ran the wellbeing festival last year, I got in touch with somebody, a friend of mine that I knew in Jamaica and they ended up running, um, doing a live cookery demonstration for our staff, um, from Montego Bay in, in Jamaica. Oh. So, yeah. So things like that, I just think are absolutely fantastic. And to be able to maybe connect with other police forces around the world and kind of see, you know, how they're looking after their staff and, you know, how we can learn from each other, I think would be fantastic. Yeah. Sounds like maybe a, a conference in the making. Mm, yeah, definitely. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, you're right. Yeah. <laughs> uh, well, wonderful. I'm so glad that I was able to connect with you and that you were willing to share your story. So thank you so much, Natasha, for joining the Lemon Spark podcast. You're welcome. Thank you for having me. Thank you for listening to the Lemon Spark Podcast. If you have a Lemon Spark story to share or know someone who does, please message us on Facebook and be sure to like our page. And remember, it's not the lemon that defines you, it's the spark.